Well, it's good to see you all here this morning, uh, just packed in here like sardines. It's kind of fun getting it ready for uh, Easter next week. Anybody excited for that? Uh, yeah, me too. Uh, well, this morning, just uh, talking about uh, this section in Acts, I came up with this title called How It Works. I've noticed in life there's people that really enjoy figuring out how things work. Anybody say that you'd fall in that camp? Like you like to figure out kind of the nuts and bolts of how things work, how they operate. I came into the church office this last week and uh, Stephanie's husband, John, was literally down on the floor with a church office computer all in different pieces, all spread out across the, the floor. And I'm like, what are you doing? And they're like, oh, he's just replacing some components. Like, I don't even know what that means. Like, uh, like uh, those, those, so there's some of us in the room that, that would say, like, yeah, I really like to figure things out. Then there's the rest of us that are just grateful that other people have figured out how things work. Anybody else fall in that camp? I think that's the, probably the majority of us. I've thought about that before. If I was left here on this earth with like what Adam and Eve started with, like uh, there'd just be like a few stone tools I'd have to operate. I couldn't recreate anything. You see, I, I think there's a reason for that though. I think there's a reason why we prefer to have others figure things out because once you've figured out how to do things, there comes a responsibility with that. I'll give an example. Back in uh, college, I figured out, I don't know how I learned this, this craft, but I figured out how to give haircuts. I know that's kind of ironic looking at me now, but I was, I was known as the haircut guy because I made the mistake early on. I did free haircuts in the dorm. And so free was the wrong idea there. But I'd get back from like a long day of classes and there'd just be like this lineup of guys waiting to get a free haircut. I was the free haircut guy. And, and so I, I learned from that mistake, and maybe you have too, is when you've figured out how to do things, you're either expected to be the one that fixes it or the one that does that. Anybody in the trades and realize that? You're just like, man, I wish I didn't have this skill. Otherwise, everybody takes advantage of you. But here, here's the idea, the reason I bring that up is because similarly, with the expansion of the kingdom of God, with the expansion of the church, there's a particular way of how it works. And for some of us have leaned too long just saying, you know what, that's, that's for other people. There's professionals that have figured out how to do that. But here's a dangerous thing that's going to happen this morning, is we're going to show in the text how the expansion of God's kingdom works, so no longer can we hide under the umbrella of, I don't really get it. I don't, I don't really get it. We're going to explain it, and here's the benefit of that is on the other side of it, every single one of us, as simple as the explanation is going to be, is going to be equipped to have an impact in their world around them. And here, some of you are like, oh man, maybe I should walk out now. But hopefully you don't do that because on the other side of this is a life of impact, a life of fulfillment, a, a life of influencing those around you. That's what's on the other side of this. Let me pray towards that end. God, we invite you here this morning to speak through this text to stretch us, to grow us, allow it to not be just a message for the person down the road, that you would grow in us as a individual and us as a church in this area of outreach, that we'd understand the simple path that you've laid out for us, that we'd walk in that, that you've already put in place in advance. God, we pray that we'd allow that to even apply to our lives in the week ahead. We invite you to be strong, for me to be small, you to be great here, even in this text. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. 
So, we're in Acts chapter 12, and we've been working through that. We're doing a little pause next week for Easter, but we're in chapter 12, just finishing up. And I'm going to start by giving you an explanation of this how it works pattern. And this explanation was given to me about 10 years ago by a pastor by the name name of James McDonald, and it's kind of stuck in my head since then. And so every time you look in the book of Acts, after you see this process, you're going to be like, oh yeah, I see that all over the place. And you're going to also notice that it's not crazy profound. So, but uh, hopefully there's still something for each of us here. First idea of how it works, how the, the kingdom of God expands is it starts with us proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming Jesus Christ to people, taking a risk in talking, engaging with those around us. Some of this, you're like, yeah, I get it, Scott. Okay, but it'll make more sense as we walk through. Opposition will arise. That's a guarantee. Once we start being bold with our faith, you're going to run into opposition. If you're saying to me right now, there's not really opposition, that means you probably haven't gotten step one down. Okay, step three is the perseverance part. That's the press on despite the opposition. And that's where the good stuff comes because on the other side of the pressing on, that's when God does his work. That's when he draws people to himself, becomes the magnet that he is. People are literally saved, eternities redirected. And ultimately, the end in this process, and you've maybe heard this expression before, is God is glorified. Is glorified. We're going to talk about all those things and identify those steps as we're looking through this section of scripture. And then once you have this in your mind, I'm confident the rest of the book of the Acts, you're like, oh, there's that pattern again. Oh, there it is again. Even looking back in the book of Acts, we could point to this pattern time and time again. So does that make sense? So we're going to get, work through that pattern, but I will got to give a little bit of backdrop before we do that. Last week, John did an excellent job going through the section of scripture, reminding us that God is in control. Anybody needed to hear that last week? A very helpful reminder for us. And he ended with a story of King Herod literally having this opportunity where he was praised in a crowd of people. He was celebrated as a God. Instead of deflecting that praise appropriately, he embraced that that, that praise himself. And what happened to him? fell, dead, eaten by worms. You know, just light stuff in scripture. Can you imagine if uh, a present day, if a, if a king during like one of his speeches was uh, being uh, praised and then all of a sudden he just drops dead. Do you think that would make it in the paper? I think so. But either way, this is how the story ends. It's pretty awesome to see we get numb to these things in scripture because there's so many cool things God does. And not that I would wish uh, somebody death and worms, but you get the idea. The, the, but it says something at the, verse 26, it says, The word of God increased and multiplied. To me, that was a great reminder that despite what we put our trust in often, kings and leaders and all of that, the one thing that actually is worthy of our trust, the one thing that does continue on is the word of God. Then here, after we look at that big picture, what's happening in the, the, the state of affairs politically, the author, Luke, moves back to talking about some of our primary characters in the book of Acts. Does that make sense? That's where we pick up in verse 25. It says this, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose name was Mark. Just a quick recap there. If you remember, they had taken, they had collected resources in this new church in Antioch because there was a huge famine. 
They take it back to Jerusalem to help the church there. It's kind of a cool thing. The church is kind of ministering to each other. Now they're coming back from that to the church of Antioch, a young church made up primarily of Gentiles. Making sense? Okay, so verse uh, continuing on. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were there worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So here's what's happening. So it's, it's moved from the big story picture to, to moving back to this church in Antioch. Literally only a couple years old at the oldest. Uh, the, the church is there and they've already established some different leaders in place. But now Saul and Barnabas are coming back, who were the kind of the, the primary leaders of this church. Now they're bringing a, a friend of theirs, the John Mark. It's actually the cousin. Uh, it's the uh, cousin of Barnabas, John Mark who later went on to write the Gospel of Mark. So as you're piecing this all together, making sense. So they show up, and it mentions that they have teachers and prophets. Basically, that was the established leaders of that time. Teachers would have been kind of like a, a, a rabbi, somebody explaining the, the history of Scripture and kind of the background there. And then a prophet would be more like a present-day pastor, somebody that's preaching the word and how it applies to their lives. So you have two different uh, players in that leadership structure, but you notice one of the things about their leadership is that they're committed to worship and fasting. In other words, they took their relationship with God very seriously. What was happening in this church was the Holy Spirit was driving everything that was happening, and they were making sure they were staying connected to the vine. For those of us that are in any kind of a leadership role, whether that's as simple as leading a, a family or maybe a, a business, whatever you're entrusted to, that leadership should stem out of that relationship that connected place with the Holy Spirit where he's guiding and driving things. When he's driving this ship, he literally calls them to send their two best, Barnabas and Saul, out to literally share the message of the gospel with the rest of the world. Instead of the other leaders complaining and murmuring about it, instead they lay hands on them and send them out. This is a huge changing point in the book of Acts Moving from Jerusalem, we're almost done with the history background, moving from Jer Jerusalem being the main city that everything's coming from to now Antioch being the main city that everything's coming from. And they're going to, instead of focusing on reaching out to the Jews, which we've had up until this point, now it's going to shift to also include outreach to Gentiles. For those of us that are Gentiles here today, we're very thankful for that. Instead of Peter being the primary focus of the remainder of the book, now it's moving to Saul. Does that make sense? So this is a big transition point. So let's pick up. Now we're getting to the place where we're going to start to see this pattern that I was mentioning, starting in verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. I want to stop there just for a section, 
uh, for a second. If uh, those of you that have a hard copy Bible, anybody still bring their, their Bible to church? Uh, there, there's a few people. Anybody have those cool maps in the back? Like, and you, you wonder when you can possibly use those? Now is that moment in time. It's awesome. So here's a quick look. I put it on the screen for those of you that don't have one of those cool Bibles. Uh, they're, they're starting in Antioch. You see it up there in the little corner, the city of Antioch. You guys all see that? So they travel about 16 miles to the Seleucia port city, uh, which is right there on the edge of the Mediterranean, and they take the trip over to Cyprus, which I think is a wise start to any missionary journey because it's a beautiful island. They show up there in Cyprus in the middle of the Mediterranean, which is a pretty beautiful spot, in the city of Salamis, which was a main port city where all trade happened. So they show up there with the intent to really reach that island for Christ. I was looking into it a little bit, and Barnabas, this was actually his hometown. So they start with their hometown heading there, and you're going to notice a trend in all of the Paul's missionary journeys. This is number one out of three that are focused on in the book of Acts. All of them start by sharing Christ with the Jews and then moving out to the Gentiles. You see there in the text, it says, When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God. So you see, I didn't make up that first point. It actually is in the text. This, this process, this pattern, it starts with opening our mouths and talking about Jesus. And what I think is, is interesting is they first start with people likely they already knew. For those of us that have never started on this adventure of sharing Christ with people, that's a great place to start. Start with people in your own family. Start with a, your, your cousin Frank. The, start with your Aunt Betty. Start with your co-worker Bob. I made up all those names. You get the idea. You, you, you pick people that you already have a relationship with. Take a risk in conversation. See what God might do with it. It has to start with a verbal witness or write a letter, either way. But you get, you get the idea. So it starts with people you know. But then here's what the push out is, is the missionary journeys of Saul and Barnabas expand beyond this much further than just people they have a relationship with. That's a great reminder for us when we're being committed to reaching out. It can't just be limited to the people that we already know. It's kind of this popular trend in kind of church world. You've maybe heard the expression before of friendship evangelism. Anybody heard that before? The idea that you develop a relationship with somebody and then based out of that relationship at some point when the perfect time arises, then you share Christ with that person. I think it's a noble thing. I think it's a, a very, uh, makes a lot of sense. You want to start obviously like these guys did talking to people that you know. But I would also suggest that we don't restrict our outreach to just people we know because there's so many other people that are open and hungry to talk about spiritual things. This uh, past Tuesday, I was in the middle of kind of working through this process and kind of writing notes down on that idea, even this, this principle of going out to people you don't know. And uh, we took a little detour and we went and bought as a church, you guys helped do this with your year-end giving this last year, we went and bought our very first church van. You know, you're, you're not a good Baptist church unless you have a church van. 
And, uh, and so, so we, have a, we, we now own a van. It's official. Thank you all. And uh, we own this van. So we show up there, and I'm just stewing on this process of sharing with people. And so I'm sitting down with a the salesperson there, and salespeople in car world aren't always the best people to hang out with, right? I mean, maybe it's no, no offense if you sell cars, because sometimes they're wonderful people, uh, like that recovery. Uh, but, uh, but, but here, I was like, I just started chatting with this guy about his life and family and, and faith background and church history. I was, I was blown away by this guy being willing to talk about Jesus and, and spiritual things. Then they move me down the, the chain, down the, the, what's the next step? Then you go and sit down with the finance guy, the guy that's trying, the guy that's trying to sell you the warranty, right? Anybody bought a car recently? That's usually a hard pitch. Well, we got started talking about denominations, and he's asking me what denomination my church is. I was like, I don't even know. I think we have some Baptist roots. No, I'm just kidding. We do. Uh, but, but, but anyway, we, we're, we're chatting a little bit. We're, ta- we're talking, and, and I had an opportunity. I said, you know what? I'm pretty sure when we get to heaven, they're not checking anybody's denomination. I think it all comes down to whether or not we've put our trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And literally, you know what this man said to me? He said, amen. I was like, that's more amens than I've got at my own church. You know, like that's pr- pr- pretty awesome thing. Pretty, aw- uh, pretty, pretty awesome to see how people are anxious to interact about these things. And guess what? I didn't even have to know them for 10 years. It was just small talk conversations that moved to engaging about Jesus Christ. What if you all, like me, stepped out a little bit. I'm not saying it's natural, always, or easy, but man, God works, and it always starts this process of boldly sharing Jesus Christ and then saying, God, you do with that what you want. So proclaim the message. You get it. So first step. Next thing, how it works. You're going to see opposition will arise. Verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned, summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is, what the, that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. You see second step here in the process, or the how it works, if you will. You notice they traveled now. Let's put that map back up. It's kind of fun to play with their maps. Okay, so they traveled from one side, Salamis, all the way 90 miles to Paphos, which is on the other side of the island. So they've arrived there. That's kind of where the central hub of government at that time was. So they come upon a magician. Sometimes when you're reading scripture, you're kind of like, man, what's with all the magicians? Here, here's a little explanation about that. It's the same term that's used for magi, the ones that visited Jesus, you remember, at his birth. So it's not like a, hey, pick a card, any card kind of magician. It, it's more of in that time, like the, a magician was somebody actually held in somewhat high esteem. They were well-educated. They knew astrology, astronomy, math, agriculture, history. They were well-versed in all of those things, often becoming advisors to political leaders in that day and age. Does that make sense? So they come across, that's what it says, come across this guy. What's his name? Bar, bar, bar Jesus. What, what's the word bar mean? What's the son of? 
son of. Interesting name for a false prophet, right? Son, son of Barnabas was son of encouragement. Now you're seeing Bar-Jesus, son of salvation, is the, man, this, uh, the, the man's name, this magician that they encounter. Pretty fascinating by his name. What we do know about him is that he's a false prophet, you know, just that little stuff there. But he's got a place of influence with the key political leader of that island, whose name was Sergius Paulus, which is a good Roman name. Just say that, Sergius Paulus. That that's evokes fear. Uh, and so Sergius Paulus, though, has him as a counselor, but he's also known for being what? What does it tell us in the text? He's intelligent. He's a smart dude, which is kind of cool. Like if you, you got your one little clip of you in the Bible and the only thing they note is like, yeah, he was really smart. He was intelligent. That's not a bad uh, clip to have in there. But here's what you'll notice, and maybe you've noticed this even in your own life, is intelligence can do one or two th- of two things in a person's life. Intelligence can either move people to a quest to get things solved and figure out things, or it can move to arrogance, and I've got it all figured out. Have you noticed that even in your own life with people you interact? People that are hungry for knowledge, or people that are like, no, I got this. You know, this, thankfully, was one of those people that his intelligence moved him to want to gather more. He had heard across the island of this guy Saul and this guy Barnabas, and he's like, man, I, I want to learn from them. So he legit invites them to come teach them what they've been teaching on the rest of the island. Kind of a cool thing. Here's the reminder or application for us today, is there's plenty of intelligent people that we're surrounded with on a daily basis that are hungry to learn more about what you already have if you have Jesus Christ. There's plenty of people. Anybody notice that? I was, uh, I was uh, with my, my best friend Joe was visiting last week, and we uh, went to 24 Fitness for a couple days while he was in town just to start the morning with. We were there, and I'd, I'd met this lady before, an elderly lady, on the treadmill and just chatting with her, just small talk. Well, she knew that I was a, a pastor, so I, I'm there with my friend Joe, who's also a pastor up in Fresno. This lady comes up to us, very sharp lady, very sharp. She's like, Pastor Scott, she goes, what can you tell me? What can you tell me about John 3.16? I'm like, she's like, do you know that verse? I'm like, I, I'm like no, I, I haven't heard of that one. No, no, I, I, I didn't. I didn't say that, but it ended up being this like fantastic conversation. She didn't know what she was getting into. She had walked up and asked two pastors what they know about John 3.16. And, and so it led, led to this fantastic conversation, and it, it stemmed out of an intelligent person saying, I want to learn more. I want to glean more. Man, there's, there's so much at stake here. Why wouldn't I want to learn more? We're surrounded with those people, whether we realize it or not. But getting to the big idea of this, what do we know about Bar-Jesus? It tells us uh, just a little bit. It says that he literally opposed him gleaming this truth. He, we, don't, we don't know what that was. I don't know if it was like more magic tricks or what, but w- whatever it was, he's trying to oppose him from coming to hear the gospel message. Here's the thing that we have to understand. God takes that really seriously in the same way that the king prior had learned that God doesn't share his glory with other people. He also, we're about to see that God doesn't, isn't really interested in people polluting or perverting 
the gospel message that can save lives. He takes that really seriously. And when we have opposition, know that we have a God that takes that very seriously. If you ever want to rally up him supporting you, blaze through the opposition. I was reading this story that was passed on to me. I thought it was a pretty powerful one. It's about a reverend, by the, Reverend Taylor is his name, who's a pastor in Jamaica. In case you're wondering if any of these stories still happen today. He had a, a man that was in one of his church services that kept interrupting during the service. So in the middle of his, his sermon, the guy kept saying things, and, and uh, it says that the Reverend Taylor would just pause and let him calm down and just continue on with his message. After this happened a number of times, finally the Reverend said, you, you know what, if you wouldn't mind, stop interrupting, I'm trying to preach here. So the guy was quiet for a moment, as he starts preaching again, the guy again interrupts. So now the Reverend Taylor begins to pray without giving him any warning. He says, Lord, I'm seeking to communicate your word to these people. This man refuses to respect that. Would you demonstrate to him before these people today that he is not to play with the living God? Ooh, so pretty, pretty intense. So it gets better, though. So that man is quiet for a few moments. Then as he starts preaching again, that man decides to test the limits a little bit, starts talking trash in the middle of service. Guess what happened in this, the middle of this church service? Guy has a heart attack, drops dead in the center aisle of the church. Can you believe that? True story. Like, it was on the internet. And so, uh, <laughs> but, but here's, the, here, here's the thing. Here's the thing. So, so can you imagine if we, in the middle, middle of our church service, like, it would be hard to move on with the sermon, wouldn't it? Like, there's this guy, like, the closing song, you're like, oh, just ignore him, you know? Like, like what, what would that be like? Because we have a God that's not to be taken lightly. lightly. Here, Saul, not thwarted by this, says, so this guy's opposing him, bar Jesus, says, but Saul, who is also called Paul, in case you're wondering where the shift was in name, this is the very first time Saul is mentioned his name, Paul. A little explanation of that, Saul would have been his Jewish name. Paul was his Roman name that he felt much more applicable for reaching out to Gentiles. Does that make sense? So this is a shift. Now we're going to know him as Paul, the remainder of the book. So he's no, Paul, who is also called, uh, Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looking intently at him. This is at Bar-Jesus. And said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Ooh, another intense story. It's almost like God takes this thing seriously, huh? Like, here's, here's the thing I first noticed. What does it say? That Saul or Paul looked at him intently. Can you imagine that gaze? Like the former persecutor of, of Christians. Do you think he had, he had a mean look down to a silence? Anybody have a dad maybe that you grew up with that had that look that they just would flash you and you knew like everything stopped there? In fact, practice that look with your neighbor right now. Let's try it there. No, no we won't do that. Uh, but, but you get the idea. So he's looking at him intently, but it doesn't just stop with a look, right? What does it say happens? It says he begins just laying into him. You son of the devil. You see the irony of that? 
What's his name? Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus. He's making a little correction. You're no son of Jesus. You're son of the devil. So he's calling him out in that moment. And I would say this was the most like politically incorrect, non-tolerant interaction of all time. Like if you're, you're just like, that was definitely Paul going back to operating in the flesh, right? You're, of course, right? but wait a second, what does it say? Filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, wait a second. Maybe the Holy Spirit takes this seriously too. Maybe we're not always called. I'm not telling you guys to go call somebody a son of the, uh, of the, uh, the devil, but you get the idea here. Uh, the, the Holy Spirit's guiding this. Why? Because there's a lot at stake. There's a lot at stake. You see, anytime someone's salvation, where they're going to spend eternity is on the line, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. And if you're wondering how you're going to persevere or press through, talk about a time that you're going to sense God's power backing you. That's when you're going to sense it and feel it is any time you're against opposition and you're trying to get the gospel out. You're like, oh, I don't really sense a lot of God's power in my life. You, you know how to sense it? Blaze through opposition with the gospel, gospel and you'll find it. You see here, I like this idea that leading someone to Christ is not an academic exercise or a sales pitch, but it involves a spiritual battle against evil forces. That's the reality of what's at stake here. I was visiting some years back up in Dearborn, Michigan. I don't know if you've heard of that city before. It's actually in the United States. It has the highest Muslim population anywhere in the United States. In, in fact, the statistic they shared with us when we were visiting is they said that there's more Muslims living per capita in that city than anywhere outside of the Middle East. So that's pretty interesting interacting there. We were visiting a, a ministry that was focused on reaching out to Muslim women with the grace of God. Remember, one of the things that, that stuck in my mind, and I've even talked about this, uh, this trip before, but one of the things that stuck in my mind from the director, the director said, you know what we've come to realize in ministering here? Is he, he, the, she said, there, there's nothing to, it's, it has nothing to do with intellectual encounters with folks here. It has everything to do with a spiritual battle. There, there, there's a war behind the scenes. And for us to recognize that when we're going out, that there is a tug of war on pe for people's souls that we're pushing past. So it's critical that we push through opposition, that we're not, not just frozen or, or, or choose to kind of cower back. I, I like the, the, the idea of uh, the, the, the one obstacle that I would suggest is the primary thing that gets in our, in our way for that. If you think about it today, the one obstacle or primary thing is fear. That's, that's, the, that's the main opposition, if we're real honest. Fear of rejection, fear of consequence, fear of not knowing enough what to say to this person, fear of awkwardness, fear of not being politically correct. You fill in what the fear is, but that's primarily today what we have to press on and press through. And that's what they, he chose to do. In fact, he even, what does it say? Doesn't just lay into him verbally. What does it say that he makes, him, makes happen? Makes him blind. Wait a second. Like sometimes you read scripture and you're just like, wait a second. That doesn't seem like the, the God that I know. Like I, 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 I follow a God that's loving and full of grace. But think about it for a moment like this. First off, you see in the text that it was for a period of time. So it had an end line to it. If you think about it, if there's anything in this life 
that happens to somebody in a negative way, if the outcome of it is them coming to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, is it not worth it? Seriously. Like, what in the world could happen to somebody that wouldn't be worth having their eternity secured? So any bad stuff that God chooses to use as a tool to bring somebody to a saving relationship with him, it's all worth it. But think about this guy in particular. I wish we could hear some of these, how this story played out. But his very last vision was a stern look from Paul, like a, a, a ticked off angry look and a rebuke, and then everything went black. Do you think this man ever forgot that experience? Do you think he was like, uh, I remember something happened with this Paul guy. Man, it's, it's just all cloudy now, no pun intended. But, uh, but you, you, you get the idea. This man, I'm sure, was impacted from this experience. God allows trials and tribulations to get people's attention to bring them to Jesus Christ. Here's how that, so he plows through that. And here's the positive side of it. Verse 12 says, then the pro-council what? What's the word? Believed. Believed. When he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. You see, this man was kind of at a crossroad. Do, do I go with this new guy, Paul, or my old blind advisor? You know what I mean? Like it was like kind of a crossroad. He had, he had to choose, but he's like, you know, once he had seen truth, and that's the funny thing about the message we hold, once somebody's exposed to it, it's hard to get it out of their heart and their mind. It's hard, hard to turn from it. It's like it, it, it's like it takes root. It, it takes place in their heart. And that's exactly what happened with this pro-council or, or high government official in that area is he believed. And it wasn't just based on what he had seen. That's an important thing. It was also based on what he was told. It says he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. You see, the message we hold, you guys, message about Jesus Christ, like that can confound even the most wise, intelligent person. It can blow people away with even just the simple message of God's rescue of mankind. That's what you hold. You don't ever have to wonder, oh, is this too elementary? Is this for a weak person? Is this like, are you kidding me? It brings the most proud person to their knees, and this man chose to respond and was saved in that moment. The last step in this process of how it works, it's not necessarily mentioned in the text, but we're going to see it through the rest of the book, and it's a principle that we all understand, is literally when we go through this process, when, when, we, when we present the gospel, when we persevere despite opposition, when people get saved, God is glorified. God is glorified. That's, that's one of those terms maybe in church that we use too much without explanation. I like this simple explanation of, of glory. Glory is anything that provides evidence of God's existence. Anything that provides evidence of God's existence. I, uh, anything that kind of makes you wide-eyed or like, whoa, where did that come from? I, I've just coming off of, I had torn a, a tendon in my finger. I don't know if you guys had noticed I was wearing this brace. I just finally got it off and my finger's still nice and crooked. But anyway, uh, the, the fun thing is I started like, like doing these like little finger exercises to kind of regain strength in that and kind of move it around. And, and it's interesting, even something as simple, in fact, look at your hand for a second. Move it around, wiggle it a little bit. Even something like your hand 
is one of those things that has potential to bring God's glory. You're like, what do you mean? Because it has his fingerprints and no pun intended, all over his, his design. There's 27 bones, 29 jo- joints, 123 ligaments in this mechanism, all screaming of a designer. You can't point to anything else other than a creator. This didn't come from an explosion. This came from a d- designer. You see, we're surrounded by things if we open our eyes to them that proclaim God's glory. And the think about this, we have the potential to add to the mix what people are surrounded with. Potential to, to add to a, another story of, look what God's fingerprint was on that. Look, I, I stepped out of my comfort zone. I took a risk. I had a conversation with somebody about Jesus. They literally, there was some, some weird, awkward uh, opposition, but on the other side of it, something clicked in that person's mind. They embraced them. A person that was dead came to life. That's an opportunity to point to God's glory. Because who else can be given credit for that? You can't give it to yourself. You can't give it to, to I, I can't change a person. I can't change a person's heart, their mind, their soul, their, their eternity. But God can. When we're involved in this process, how it works, we have the potential with our life to bring glory to God. I don't know about you, but at the end of my days, that's what I would love to be known for. A, a, a glory giver, one that's, that's pointing the spotlight as many times as much as possible to Almighty God. Talk about a thing that's worth living for and even a thing that's worth dying for. This is how it works. And here's the dangerous thing. Once you know how it works, you're responsible for it. Let me pray. God, thank you for your word. I thank you for this text. I thank you for this pattern that we do see throughout the expansion of your church and the kindness that you choose to include us in this. Choose to include simple people like me, simple people in this room with just a gospel message to change eternities. God, I pray that you pull us from the sidelines, that we get involved in this ourselves and see the fruit and the sweetness of being on the team with Almighty God. God, I pray that even going into this week ahead as we race into Easter and thinking about how many people that could show up at Easter services, if we took a, a stretch, if we stretched ourselves, took a risk even with an invite, pray that this wouldn't just add up on the mile high pile of messages we heard, but it actually transformed the way we interact with people. Pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Hey, just a, a fun story. So yesterday we were at the Great Race of Agora. We had a booth set up and trying to reach out, just passing on invites and stuff. And I, I had one lady that we were chatting with just for a brief, just briefly. And I said, hey, do you, do you mind if I, I, can I give you an Easter invite? She goes, hell yeah, you can give me an Easter invite. And then she realized what she had said, and she's just like, I mean, heaven, yeah, you can give me an Easter invite. So, so let's take some risks in conversation this week, see what God might do that. I think people are eager to come and hear truth. Amen. God bless you.